becoming the leader you would follow. That's what we're talking about in today's podcast. Welcome to the latest episode of the Leadership Journey podcast. I'm Kelly McCauley, the president here at McCauley and Company, where we help good leaders become great through high-impact, results-driven leadership programs and executive coaching. Today, our esteemed guest is Scott Miller, a Wall Street Journal bestselling author, here to discuss his recent book, a multi-week Amazon number one new release, Management Mess to Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow. Welcome, Scott. We appreciate you joining us today to talk about your book and sharing the leadership lessons you learned, experienced, and still work on while rising up the ranks at Franklin Covey. Kelly, it's my delight. Thank you for the platform. I'm excited for our conversation. <laughs> Scott, your book identifies 30 challenges that once solved transforms us into a leader that we would follow. So I picked challenges from the chapters in Management Mess to Leadership Success that my clients leading sales and growth organizations regularly run into. You talk about the importance of declaring intent in challenge number four. Why does it matter? Wow, I think I love the PR principle, the public relations principle, which is absent facts, people make stuff up. And it's usually not in our favor. <laughs> it's never in our favor. <laughs> I mean, think to your point. I mean, think about all the conflict in your life. I mean, for your listeners today, think about the interpersonal conflict you have in your life with your children, your spouse or partner, your boyfriend or girlfriend, your neighbor, your in-laws, people on the team you work on, people in your organization, people that you might be on a tennis team with or your boss. Most of it is because... We have unmet expectations. In fact, I love this, this phrase, Kelly, is that nearly all, if not all, conflict in life comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. I mean, who was going to bring what to the Thanksgiving dinner, right? And who was going to deliver what by what time for the project? When we declare our intent, it minimizes the suspicion that others have around our motives. Because all of us have hidden agendas. You do, I do. You're all of us have hidden agendas. That's part of being a human. The degree to which we surface those agendas, where they become less hidden and more visible, has a direct impact on how you're trusted, on how people assume good intent or assume bad intent. So I think one of the great leadership advices that Dr. Stephen R. Covey, who co-founded our firm, gave us in his books and writings was this idea of declaring your intent up front. When you walk into a high stakes conversation or a perhaps tense environment or perhaps with your family members, an in-law, say, my intent is to make this fun and joyful or my intent is not to slow down the process but to help speed it up. And before I can do that, I need to know X, Y, and Z. Because the moment there is suspicion about a person's intent, every one of their motives becomes tainted. And it requires you to move outside of your comfort zone sometimes and discuss the undiscussables, right, with your sister-in-law or whatever it is. I mean, this is as much alive in our personal lives as it is in our professional lives. Oh, I loved that about your book, the way you gave so many ways to do the things that are difficult to do. So many of my clients face, I want a promotion or more money, or they have to give very hard corrective feedback. Can you give an example of, let's say a promotion, an example of how you would declare intent on that? 
on, on someone's desire to be promoted? Correct. Wow, I would say just that. I, I would actually open the conversation with the words. Kelly, I'd like to declare my intent for this conversation. My intent is to learn how to achieve and earn a promotion inside of this team. And so I would like to understand what are the things that I'm doing or not doing that might be contributing to me advancing my intent, which is to earn a promotion, or perhaps inhibiting me from earning a promotion. And I would just stop right there. I would stop right there and say, my intent is to earn a promotion, and my intent is also to learn from you what are the things that can accelerate that, and as importantly, what are the things that could decelerate that? Fantastic. You're also passionate about how critical it is to lead difficult conversations in challenge number 12. You actually wrote, if you can't lead difficult conversations, step down immediately. (laughs) I work with alpha male and female leaders in financial services, law firms, and tech. Many of them have built businesses from the ground up. My financial services clients are sitting on billions of dollars of assets under wealth management. And even they shy away from difficult conversations. So what most often stops leaders from having these types of discussions and knowing how important they are, what can make it easier? Uh, Yeah, I don't think you've understated or misquoted me. I think next to recruiting and retaining genius talent in your organization, this is the second most crucial, vital, and important role that any leader of people plays, and that is leading difficult conversations. The greatest gift that you can give to anybody working with you or for you is to help them see blind spots. We all have them. You have them. I have them. None of us are as gracious or as punctual or as collaborative or as trustworthy or as smart as we think we are. All of us have blind spots. Kelly, you do, and I do. It's that rare leader in our lives that has the courage, the stamina, the the gumption, if you will, to move outside of their own comfort zone, to approach us in a non-threatening, comfortable environment to talk about them, to sit us down and say, Kelly, listen, my intent in this conversation is to help you build a great career here inside this organization. And I might actually say some of the wrong words, so I might need a do-over, and I'm a little bit nervous about it, but there's something that you're doing that is really tripping up your ability to succeed here, and I want you to succeed, so I'm going to actually talk about it right now with you. You are, in every meeting, talking 80% of the time, and it is starting to diminish your impact and your influence amongst our team. I'm wondering if you're seeing this similarly and if you have any idea why you're talking so much in meetings and how can I help you build your influence by lessening how much you talk. Now, it might be a different topic, right? Kelly might be about their, their, their interpersonal skills, their collaboration skills. It might be about their body odor or how they're dressing or the fact that they're a know-it-all or you get the point, right? But the greatest gift you can give to someone is to talk to them in a non-threatening way. Now, easy for us to discuss on the phone, it's much more difficult when you've got someone in your office that doesn't wear deodorant and it's starting to become not just a brand issue for him or her, but it's actually causing, you know, strife among the team. Sure. And I, and I use that as a very legitimate example. That's why it's important that leaders first check their intent. 
Is my intent to embarrass this person? No, hopefully not. Is my intent to help them? Yes. If your intent is pure, most times your technique will be forgiven because all of our technique is going to be mixed up, right? You're going to look passionate when you feel angry. You're going to look concerned when you feel helpful. There, you know, you got to check your in, um, intent and then align your technique to that. So here's some advice for your leaders. First, get pure on your intent and declare it. Say up front, I'm nervous. This is uncomfortable. I don't mean to embarrass you, which is why what I, what's said in here stays in here. Second, role play it with a trusted advisor, not someone on the team. Go to your spouse or your partner. HR, the executive suite. You don't need to disclose the person's name to have a good role play because you need to make sure that you're using words that are both high on courage, but Kelly also high on consideration, right? Diplomacy is that these people can understand that you care about them and you're not willing to go so far on the courteous side that they leave the meeting wondering, well, what was that even about, right? Well, I have no idea why she even called me in here. This is so valuable because... I believe most people are avoiding it because they usually don't turn out well, especially in personal situations. And that's where we learn most of our conflict management skills as, as a kid. And then as we rise up through the ranks in organizations. But I love how you say declare intent. And then the next step is, you know, share what is happening and what needs to be resolved in a considerate and courageous way. And, and ask their opinion. Are, are you seeing this similarly? Have you, have you noticed that? Do I, do I have the facts right? I think when leaders are giving others feedback, leaders are human. So all of us sometimes confuse our emotions and our opinions with facts. Emotions are emotions and opinions are opinions and they're valuable, but they don't always equate to being facts. So when you're giving advice, make sure you know what is your opinion and your feelings and your emotions and what is a fact and separate those. And I think, Kelly, it's also so important when you're role-playing this, do it live in front of someone because you know what? I mean, I mentioned this earlier. I'm a very passionate person. You can tell. I'm loud. I'm forceful. I'm courageous. I'm bold. And that can come across as very threatening to people. I'm also, I'm also cognizant that my passion can sometimes look like anger or frustration. And so I need people, when I'm role-playing it, to tell me, Am I, do I feel threatening to you? Do I feel inspiring? And I have to sometimes calm my passion down because it can be misinterpreted. I mean for it to help you and others think that I'm getting ready to fire you. I'm like, oh my gosh, my delivery is so poor. So I, my advice to people, check your intent, own up to it. You have to have difficult conversations. They're not easy. They're hard for everyone. You're going to screw up the first dozen of them. Hey, my HR file isn't an expandable <laughs> folder for no reason, right? I mean, I, I went sideways on the first, you know, probably dozen of them and then role play them and just make sure that you have an equal balance of courage with consideration. You don't want people to be eviscerated in the meeting and you also don't want them leaving confused. That's such terrific advice. And I'm, I'm going to ask you one other question that I did not send in my notes to you, which is you talked a lot in the book about having these difficult conversations and being careful not to get Franklin Covey or yourselves into the legal bullshit. Yeah, sure, sure. So 
Could you say something about how do you do that? That's another reason people don't have the difficult conversation. They're afraid it's going to get me in my yes. lawyer's office. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a poor excuse, but there may be different solutions, right? I mean, every culture is different, right? You may have a very low trust culture. You may have a unionized culture. You may have a culture where previously uh, the leader was disrespectful or sexually harassed someone. So don't always take that personally. There may be times to outsource an especially difficult or potentially litigious conversation to human resources. There may be time to outsource a conversation to a member of the same gender. I have had conversations with females about the necessity of them to wear a bra in the office. Now, that may may horrify some people, but I read the situation right, right? I, I recognize that this young woman saw me as a mentor, that we had a high trust situation. I did it across the same side of the table as her. It was in the midst of some broader career coaching. I actually role-played it with a member of the HR team, and we both agreed it was appropriate for me to, to you know, take this risk and have the conversation. There are people that I would not feel comfortable having that conversation with, either because they might feel threatened by me or I fear their retaliation. So I just think read your situation well, but don't use outsourcing as an excuse to not step to the table because 90% of these conversations should and must be halved by the leader. You might choose to bring someone into the conversation so it is, you know, technically not crossing the line. That's why the role play is so important because if you role play it, including what their response might be, how they might handle it, how you might handle them getting hostile or getting emotional, how to deal with those, that's why the role playing is so important so that you are prepared to make sure that the other person feels respected and that you deliver the points that need to be delivered. Mm, Very valuable. Thank you for sharing that. One of my pet peeves is the rarely held one-on-ones with team members. I personally had a frustrating experience in my early days as a manager when people were doing annual reviews. And during the performance review, it was a year after I'd started with this organization, my boss, one of the pieces of corrective feedback was my emails are too short. And yes, I am a direct person. (laughs) But I remember thinking, I did not say this out loud, why didn't you tell me this nine months ago we wouldn't be having this conversation? Because I was very open to coaching. So in challenge number 20, you confess to potentially writing this for yourself. What gets in your way of having regular one-on-ones and what have you put in place to get better at it? But it's such a valuable, I think, insight for all of us because none of us have less to work on. None of us have less choice. No one is facing less options on Netflix or HBO or Amazon, <laughs> right? I mean, if, if, we th- if you think choice, decision-making is a challenge now, dis- high-value decision-making is going to become a leadership competency in a matter of you know, hours if it isn't already, right? Is what do you choose? How do you choose? Where do you choose to invest your time? Nothing is more important than the relationships inside your organization. You know, this idea that people are a company's most valuable asset is completely not true. It's a lovely phrase, but people are not a company's most valuable asset. The relationships between people are an organization's most valuable asset. Because Kelly can be a Rhodes Scholar and Scott can be a black belt master Six Sigma. But if Kelly and Scott can't get along and we can't collaborate, if we can't complement each other's strengths and weaknesses, if we can't forgive each other, if we can't 
pre-forgive each other, then the organization doesn't need us. So these one-on-one meetings are absolutely crucial for leaders to understand what's going on with your people. How's it going? What's it like working for me? What's it like working on this team? What are your fears, your aspirations, your dreams? Have you moved the proverbial button to the right on LinkedIn that now says open to opportunities? Because once that happens, it's gone. You know, another myth that I'll debunk is leaders do not create engagement, Kelly. You know that. Leaders create the conditions for others to choose their own level of engagement, high or low. So these one-on-one meetings are not your weekly staff meeting. They're not your accountability meeting. And it's not a chance for you to check on your people. It's a chance, rather, for you to check in with your people. So we teach them different points of view, right? Your team member, they call the meeting, not you. They schedule the meeting, not you. They draft the agenda, not you. They lead the meeting, not you. They talk 70% of the time. The leader talks 30% of the time. Your job is to listen, clear the path, cut through the red tape, and understand how can you help them choose a higher level of engagement because we know this adage people don't quit their jobs they quit their boss and they quit their culture and it sounds like a bit of a cliche but I think it is right on with three and a half percent unemployment people don't go across the street for one more dollar an hour or one percent more commission or a free soda machine if they love their boss and they feel like their boss loves them So true. So true. It's funny because some of the things you are saying, like high value decision making, I'm wanting to make notes. And then I remembered, oh yeah, I'm recording this. I don't need to make notes. (laughs) My, My favorite quote from you came from chapter 30, get better. You challenge leaders to get better, not by doing passive learning, but by taking ego risks and daring to produce your own podcast, host your own conference to quote Scott, Write your own damn article. Right. Record record your own TED Talks. And you said that stemmed from a conversation with Seth Godin, reminding you of the value of knowing the difference between being reckless versus fearless. Share some examples of how these differences play out in the world of leadership. Oh, great question. I mean, Seth Godin's a great friend of mine. He did teach me this idea of being reckless versus being fearless. When you're reckless, You say what's on your mind, regardless of the damage that might do to somebody's self-worth. When you're reckless, you guess at numbers and don't take notes in meetings. When you're reckless, you talk outside of your comfort zone and don't let others speak their mind too. When you're reckless, you decide that you're the smartest person in the room, when in fact your job is not to be the genius, but to be the genius maker. Nobody is deliberately, proactively, intentionally reckless. But if you look at some of the things that I just said, and you find yourself aligning with any of those, you're probably being more reckless when you mean to be fearless. The fearless person is the person who does care about culture. They do care about others' upward mobility. You do care about the impact your words have on other people but you're mindful of it. And the same is true on your own professional development is I'd say be fearless, right? I mean, I'm listening to podcasts. I read a hundred books a year. I subscribe to three papers a day. I do all those more passive things, but you know what? Like you, I'm putting myself out there, right? I'm writing an ink column. 
I'm hosting a podcast. I host a radio program, iHeartRadio. The more you're willing to put yourself out there, the more you will exponentially increase your own learning, your professional development. You know, Kelly, I'll confess to you, as I become more of a public person through my books and my speeches, the feedback that comes to me is unprecedented, right? I mean, there are blogs dedicated to my hair. There are websites <laughs> that comment on my glasses, right? You know what? Haters going to hate, right? I mean, the other 7.4.99999 billion people out there, I do not play to the naysayers. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't have great channels of feedback. Oh, I do. I have very deliberate people placed in my life that have no boundaries. They tell me if I need a mint. They tell me if my fly is down. They, they tell me if I use the word I too many times in an article. I mean, these people are trusted advisors in my life, and there are no boundaries on helping me understand, was I moving too far off my fearless podium into my reckless podium? So I would just encourage people, as you're looking at improving your skills, get bold with your work ethic and your ability to care a little bit less about what some people think about you. Truly, this is priceless wisdom. And that's what I loved so much about your book. And also, I got a LinkedIn post where you showed a picture of a room where you were the speaker and no one was in it. Oh, that's so true. No one showed up. <laughs> I would, at my first reaction, I was mad. Like, are you, are you kidding me? What, where are these people? Are they giving away free money in the room next door? But, <laughs> But it was also very encouraging to me, Scott, because three months ago I did a speech that I totally butchered in front of 300 people that they videotaped and it was, you know, I wanted to dig a hole and jump into it. <laughs> and I, they, we had a breakout session afterwards and only 10 people showed up and I was like, he's a best-selling author. What is wrong with these people? They're not in the room and I must not have been that bad. 10 people showed up. Oh, it happens to all of us, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I am privileged like you to be able to friend and interview, you know, in, insane celebrities, right? Best-selling authors and CEOs. Everybody's got these stories. Everyone. I wrote this book, Kelly, and, and I know our time is ending. I wrote this book because I wanted people to know the best leaders, the most influential leaders are the ones that own their mess, that they're confident enough, they're vulnerable enough to share their messes and talk about them because when you own your mess, you make it safe for others to own theirs. So if you want to see behavior change on your team, in your organization, in your family, admit your mistakes. Be comfortable sharing the areas that you're scared about. Own your mess. And when you do, you make it safe for others to own theirs. So you could put me in the column of Scott Miller fan. I, I adore it. your work. It is very valuable. My clients and my audience will get tremendous value from you and from this conversation as well as the book. So thank you so much for your candor with us about your leadership journey, allowing us to learn from your mistakes, which the book tells a whole lot of them. It sure and, does. <laughs> and sharing what works. Management Mess to Leadership Success, I found it, Scott, to be a really breezy read, not to mean lightweight, but super well-designed with smart content and terrific examples bravely shared by you. And it was easy to stay focused, appreciate the lessons, and pick out areas that are important for me and my clients to get better at. Yeah, I, I, think, I think the most valuable lessons in life come from your messes, not from your successes. 
as I became a leader, I thought my job was to have everybody turn into mini me's, mini Scots. And I realized, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, no, my job is to have them achieve the same results that I achieved, but not to diminish them or try to turn them into me. And, And I learned a lot of these lessons later on in life. And I hope my book helps some of your listeners um, avoid some of the pitfalls that I experienced. Well, thank you so much for being on our Leadership Journey podcast. My delight. Thank you, Kelly. So to learn more about Scott Miller, go to franklincovey.com and listen to his podcast. To buy his recently published book, Management Mess to Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow, go to Amazon. To listen to more podcasts like this, please visit Macaulay and Co., dot com forward slash podcast and also check out our online blueprint for high-performing leaders self-study program for yourself or members of your team until next time we wish you the best on leading yourself and your team to higher levels of success as you continue on your leadership journey